I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. It's an honor today to be joined by Dr. Pete Anderson. Dr. Pete is an oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic Pediatrics Institute and a professor at the Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. His team's approach to caring for young cancer patients involves facilitating outpatient care with fewer side effects of therapy. He's published over 130 peer-reviewed journal articles. Pete, it's been about 14 years, February of 2006, when we first met. Um, We both were speaking at a conference on end-of-life care at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I vividly remember you describing yourself as a character who enters patients' life stories, and you enter their stories when they're facing the disruption of a cancer diagnosis. Part of your job, as you envision it, is to help them write the next chapter. It was an absolute privilege to see how you do this in action, to follow you with a camera for two years as Casey Hayward and I produced a film distributed by PBS, titled The Art of the Possible, and for our listeners who's joining us, it's available on Amazon. I've learned a lot from you about how to be present for others in the midst of pretty profound suffering and really how to live a a well-lived life. I'm excited for listeners to meet you today and join our conversation as we talk about the importance of therapeutic alliances between patients and doctors, and then what that looks like in a virtual environment. So thank you for joining us today, Pete. Lynn, it's a pleasure. I remember talking about how many chapters the patients have often is up to them, Mm. and especially also how they want to script the ending. It might be long-term follow-up, but it also might be an ending which they never anticipated, but they still have control over uh, the quality of life and uh, how they want to live it. So it was fun to do that art of the possible because that showed us firsthand uh, patients and their families are capable of so much more than we ever thought. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's hard for viewers of the film and for listeners to perhaps understand what would lead somebody into a career focused on pediatric oncology. This is, this is the front lines of suffering, really hard, hard life moments that you walk on, walk on the journey with parents, um, with kids. What led you to do this? Uh, actually, it started as a medical student. Uh, There, I was interested in genetics, but during a rotation, uh, Michael Harris was the pediatric oncology attending, and I remember him helping a Mexican boy whose family barely spoke English, um, 
not only gets standard of care, but extraordinary care. And the compassion he showed, but also kind of how science can help you understand how to do things better. Uh, that was the very first time I saw that. And then as a resident, you realized oncology is a very underserved area. Um, if you're up to challenges and like challenges, as well as understand that sometimes it's not what you do, but how you do it that counts, uh, then you found your life's calling. And in oncology, the the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So for me, it was a revelation when I, I realized this during my internal medicine and pediatrics residency at Duke. So how long have you been a, a practicing oncologist, Pete? I did my fellowship in 1985, so it's been a long time. And what's so interesting about the field is you're constantly learning new things. And it has become very social in many ways. You learn far more from your patients than you ever thought you would. So it's never a boring job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Last week, a case in point, when I was shadowing you at the Cleveland Clinic, I had the opportunity to um, interact with you and Delaney, a patient in Vermont, you and Sally, a patient in South Carolina, and Angela in Chicago. And with each one of them, I heard you talk about how you learned things from them and what you were learning. And, and in this case, you were learning about the toxic effects of treatment. You are learning about chemo brain or chemo fog, right? That makes it hard to remember things. And just listening to your patients, learning from them has led you to pursue clinical trials that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? Oh, it's absolutely true. Um, sometimes you start with a recipe, but then you want to improve it. And that's where the art of oncology occurs. And I have a fantastic team here at Cleveland Clinic in terms of uh, nurse coordinator, uh, nurse practitioner, especially pharmacy. We have a lot of depth there. So um, oncology is the kind of profession you don't do on your own. So uh, together you can accomplish way more than you ever could on your own. And what's interesting is clinical research should be part of clinical care. Uh, a motto that uh, I learned from the osteosarcoma group, uh, make it better, uh, really applies. You know, your job should be to make it better. And uh, vice versa, they make it better for us if they stay healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the art of the possible, a, a quote that lingers with me um, that you shared, you don't get smart talking to yourself. Oh, that's, that's absolutely true because it's kind of an unrushed visit. Uh, you'll learn far and away the most from your patients. But also, uh, if you like to read and learn new things, um, that's how you'll learn 
new things. And then going to meetings is always very stimulating because that's why we have meetings is to share with each other and to learn from each other. Really, the heart of what we've been talking about, you describe as your model of developing therapeutic alliances with patients and their families. You talked about that in a 2010 article published in Health Communication, and then again in a recent article that you and Dr. Rabbi um, Hannah published. There's a quote that I want to share with you. You say, the diagnosis of cancer heralds the possibility of an early death. Unfamiliar environments like hospitals and clinics and high stakes may hijack emotions and can result in anxiety and poor ability to not only understand information, but also prevent effective action and reactions, end quote. And you go on to offer this model of a therapeutic alliance. And really, that's what we've been talking about, that this is a relationship um, between you and patients and, and other care specialists, and you all have different knowledge, but the patient, patients and their families have, have knowledge, their own life experiences, and understanding of their own bodies, and all of that comes together to be able to create the, the best possible quality of life for patients and their families. Well, I, I think of a therapeutic alliance as a pediatric oncologist, we almost have an unfair advantage called parents. Mm. Parents have a special protective feeling, but they also will take it upon themselves to learn as much as possible how to help their child. And so they're the role model of caregivers developing therapeutic alliances with oncologists. The other way I see it is you have a high-functioning team like what Dr. Han- Robbie Hanna has and I have here, where you'll have people of various disciplines uh, all working together to do a variety of roles. And uh, we have a motto here at Cleveland Clinic, to work as a unit. And I learned this from my uh, twin brother, who actually, his voice sounds just like mine. But uh, it's kind of funny. I remember Dave coming home. Uh, He was a Ford observer in the Army. And uh, when you work as a unit in in the military, everybody has a different job, but together they accomplish more. And the founders of Cleveland Clinic realized this after World War I. So I see my job as kind of like Dave's used to be, a Ford observer, where it's what I have to do is figure out what resources to put to bear to have the problem solved by as many people as efficiently as possible. And from the patient's perspective, if they have, I use sayings like boring is good, or if things just get better and better, then we've done our job. So how do you do that? It requires open communication. It also requires give and take. What can we do better? What worked well? And then I call it a virtuous cycle instead of vicious cycle of chemotherapy. Instead Mm. of running the same play and getting the same toxic results, hopefully you get to the point where they're living as full of a life as possible, not only 
during therapy, but after therapy as well, they've learned totally new skill sets they never thought they'd have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the time that I've, I've known you, you have expanded the repertoire of tools that you use to interact with with patients and families in therapeutic alliances. As of late, you've become a maven of sorts of virtual visits. Um, For the skeptic out there, talk to us about how it's possible for you to take this same humanistic approach to care that often happens in face-to-face environments and live that out in a virtual visit, right, where you might be separated by time and space, yet still connected through emergent technology. How is that possible? Well, what I've seen is it's actually made my life a little more predictable. Mm. Instead of random phone calls or emails or text messages from parents or patients or relatives, I can do a much better job if I get some limited information, not the whole chart, but just a brief summary, the scans, which they can upload themselves nowadays or send a CD, with the electronic medical record, quite frequently, we can not only just look at our EMR here, the electronic medical record, But also, if it's the same type of record, we use EPIC. Through Care Everywhere, we can uh, share records with other centers. So it makes it much easier to kind of do the detective work beforehand, coming up with a what I call a one-page summary to organize the visit. So when you actually have the virtual visit, which resembles Skype or FaceTime, you're already organized in terms of who are the caregivers, who's the referring physician, sometimes even know their height and weight, Mm -hmm. and med list from the shared electronic medical record. I've got a chronological history. So then that helps me Uh, have what I consider the most fruitful part of the discussion, which is sharing where they're at. But instead of calling it a problem list, I think of it as opportunities to improve health. And we go over at least six opportunities for solid tumor patients every time and expand on these. And what I'll do is update the summary during the visit. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the visit... I can email it to them, and then they have a record of what we've talked about. So it helps them to stay on task and to improve things as a result of the visit. So for me, a limited amount of time of preparation. For them, it's um, a time investment too, but together we can help their uh, situation become better and better instead of wondering what is the major, what is the minor thing I need to be concerned about. They'll know how to work more effectively with their home team. Mm -hmm. In listening to you now and in reflecting on my visit with you last year, um, last week, where in the matter of a morning, we traveled from 
Charleston, South Carolina, to Chicago, to Vermont, in a matter of three hours, right? And, and interacted with various different stakeholders, people invested in, in the process of care for their loved ones. What struck me then, and in listening to you now, is somewhat of a paradox that relates to time, where on the one hand, right, you're trying to be more efficient with with your access to time and understanding of time as a resource, and you want to, to manage that information in ways that um, make the investment um, worthwhile. Patients save time because they don't necessarily have to travel across the country to be with you, right? You get the information ahead of time in order to, to be prepared, but all of that efficient, organized use of time allows for then an unrushed and an unhurried visit, right? So you're moving between this, right, recognizing time as a scarce resource of physicians and of patients and families, using it wisely so that then you can have unrushed, unhurried visits. Yes, and and that was the genius of what Robbie Hanna recognized, is that if you could just set aside some time, then for these high-stakes conversations, and many of them are that way, we're talking about where are the metastases, do you do surgery or radiation, or is a special technique like uh, freezing tumors that's available at Cleveland Clinic or clinical trials. Um, It's actually less anxiety-provoking as a conversation where they're sitting in their living room or kitchen table, and I'm in my office with pictures behind me, and uh, it's it's unrushed. Sometimes um, one of the the opportunities to improve health I'll talk about is social. It's how to handle expectations, but as well as um, what books to read, how to improve your education. It gives them a message. You know, your time is what you want to do with it. So you might as well uh, do these things that you like to do. I call it deliberate practice. So you get better and better at them instead of just worrying about the what-ifs. Life's full of many problems, some which never happen. So what I try to do is help them understand uh, how to live a life in which they're doing more than just medical things. And, and that's what's particularly fun about the virtual visits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So last week, it was a real pleasure to interact with, with you and Sally as you were talking about your shared love of gardening. And, and you were talking about having planted daffodils, and she was talking about right her beans and tomatoes and goji berries and and with a lot of pride telling you about her beautiful rose garden and and promising to follow up with with photos and that was an essential part of that physician patient interaction right oh it it is a uh, essential part when i think of um getting good history um it's, it is storytelling, you know, it goes both ways. 
And the way I think of uh, kind of knowing if patients are getting better or not is how are they spending their time? And are they doing things they like? Uh, is their social network getting bigger and better? Do they have things to look forward to? These are the kinds of things you can find out during the virtual visits, and it'll shed a whole new light on how they can be more intentional in not only the way they live, but how to organize their life, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's this fundamental respect and acknowledgement that when Delaney, for example, might be struggling with the the after effects of treatment for that fist-sized tumor that was diagnosed as osteosarcoma at the end of a femur, she still has a life that's going on around her. She's a senior in high school, and she's about to graduate. And you want to make sure that that next surgery or that next treatment has to to coordinate around those big moments in her life that she's been accepted to the Hobie leadership camp and that that's as important as any medicine that you might offer her. Oh, absolutely. Um, That's one of the things I really like about having calendars as part of my practice. I'll have an editable calendar we'll use to keep track of chemotherapy and scans and appointments. So at a glance, we're all trained to look at a calendar and know what will happen. But on it, I'll put things like birthdays and graduations and vacations and events. And then that calendar becomes far more useful than just medical information. So it's The other thing I try to do on the one-page summaries is if they have a photo that they send me, I'll put it on there. So in my notes, whether it's the electronic medical record, I can put a picture, and that'll make the consultant know the patient instantly, like, yeah, they're pretty healthy. So there's ways to tell stories. Uh, Most of us like pictures. (laughs) We won't just read text if we can help it. And I think that's something that we're going to see more of in the virtual visits, just the beginning. Hi, folks. Lynn, breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Pete Anderson, a professor and practicing oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic Pediatrics Institute. If you'd like to read some of Dr. Pete's work, I encourage you to go to the Defining Moments page at dmpodcast.woub. There are links to the articles we've been discussing. Additionally, you can watch Dr. Pete as he develops therapeutic alliances with patients and families in a short digital film that's available on WOUB Public Media Center's YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash user slash WOUB PBS. Once more, that's www.youtube.com slash user slash WOUB PBS. 
His work is also featured in a documentary film titled The Art of the Possible, available on Amazon. Okay, back to our conversation with Dr. Pete. One of the other tools that I've seen you integrate in your practice is the Life Extraordinary website. And and for our listeners joining us, you can learn more about that at lifeextraordinary.org. But as I understand it, this was developed by a family who had had experiences at Cleveland Clinic and is now an online story-sharing resource, but it's also a resource for crowdsource funding, a resource for for managing the care that that loved ones want to provide? Oh, yeah. It truly is extraordinary. When you think about it, how you share your story is therapeutic because everybody wants to know, but how much time do you have to send emails, text messages, call people? Yet, you know, this blog feature is fantastic. Sometimes I'll tell high school students, this is your English assignment. You know, this way you can let people know how you're doing. And then the calendar, people want to help, but don't quite know exactly how to. So they can either sign up for tasks or be assigned tasks. And then there's the financial toxicity of cancer treatment. And that's where the crowdfunding comes in. So this family who experienced all the challenges of having a little boy that uh, had extraordinary needs during treatment and feeling like if we're going through this, a lot of other people are. And then paying it forward is just a, a wonderful story in and of itself. So if you go to the website, you'll you'll be amazed. And all of this is really fairly fairly straightforward to coordinate. And and as you acknowledged before, you have an amazing team that helps you, including your assistant Doretha, who is not just a secretary, but but she's out there saving lives, right? She's helping to get... Oh, there's there's no question about it. She has a big heart and will do what it takes to help improve access. And, you know, the when I think about uh, clinical trials, um, it's an important part of what we do in oncology. So how do you know if a trial's right for you? or what's out there. And the virtual visits have helped that as a pre-screening tool, whether it's the vigil vaccine for Ewing sarcoma or the Onco-1 drug that I'm testing. But it's a way for people to exchange information and then say, you know, I fit the eligibility criteria, the exclusion criteria, but I need a backup plan. What should that be? Or what should I do before I go on the trial? So this is where, uh, for me, it's been particularly fun and enlightening to try to help them pull together resources in a way that they can really understand uh, how to get the best outcome. And to do that, you rely on American Well software. 
Yeah, it's it's a partnership between Cleveland Clinic and the software developer because you want the um, visits to be HIPAA compliant, but also with time to have the ability to improve them too. And uh, so they've become a much larger part of care than more quickly than I ever thought they would be. But on the other hand, it's also made the new patient visits when they do come here for special care to Cleveland Clinic much easier because then they're a known quantity. I may have presented their case at sarcoma conference. Um, So it's the world's become a smaller place, but much more friendly uh, because of the virtual visits. Mm-hmm. So at a, a basic level, American Well just provides a web and mobile platform through which you can connect virtually with, with patients and their families, although, although sometimes they'll have their health care providers with them, and you can interact with other members of their extended health care team. But that happens with, with very few resources needed on the part of patients and families. Yeah, all they need is a cell phone or a laptop, and they can do it. And it's, for me, it's been kind of fun because everybody can literally be at the table and ask questions. And at the end of the visit, we're all smarter about what's happening, what's possible to do, how do you look at the future in terms of um, anticipating and preventing problems instead of just reacting to them, Uh, how do you manage um, toxicity, what are the best kinds of scans to do. It's really pretty amazing to see how a conversation uh, can help people get organized in new and different ways. What I find particularly compelling is how these emergent technologies have increased access to specialized care. Because, Pete, you're one of a few people, right, not just across this nation, but internationally, who specializes in sarcomas. And it might be difficult to access that specialized knowledge, right? And appointments with you are few and far between. But if the Cleveland Clinic can set aside time where people in Canada, right, in in Georgia, in Nebraska, can tap into some of that expertise, then then you've made care accessible that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. And I find that beautiful. Well, I think it's a model that uh, will be used in different forms by a lot of uh, care providers. And oncology has become sub-sub-specialized in many ways, both in pediatric oncology, but also medical oncology, even radiation oncology. So it may be a way for people with problems that are not common to feel like, oh, you know, there are people out there who have seen this before, know what to do, can help me. And they all don't have to come to Cleveland, and sometimes they do, but uh, the virtual visit is a 
easy way to get started. The other thing I see them uh, helping with is just the same way uh, virtual visits have been useful in primary care, I can see our PAs and NPs as well as oncologists use them more to anticipate, prevent problems before they get to be big problems. So I think it's a good way to think of it as our job should be to keep you out of the hospital instead of in the hospital. And by doing so, both of our lives are much better. Coming full circle to to where our conversation started, what strikes me as so important for us to remember, and and in thinking about this, I'm reminded of of one of my favorite writers, Catherine Montgomery. She was a, a professor at Northwestern Medical School before she retired. Her book, How Doctors Think, in that book, she talked about how, particularly in the U.S., we tend to position medicine as a science, right? And medicine is a science that uses these advanced technologies. But the limit of that is we forget that it's also an interpretive craft, that there are narrative sensibilities that are required. And so she argues that instead of of viewing science at medicine as a science, right? And medicine is a science that uses technology. Instead, we need to think about medicine as a science and technology using interpretive craft. That that fundamentally, this is an interpretive craft that's based on relationships between providers, patients, families, other providers. And you use medicine and you use technology, but at the heart of it, this is about a relationship, right? And and how can we, through that relationship, enhance the quality of a life? Oh, absolutely. The relationship part is starts with mutual respect. And I think almost all doctors have respect for their patients. But how do you communicate that in a way where you have limited time or resources? Um, there's a big difference between just looking at a report in text and actually sitting down with the patient and reviewing the scans face-to-face or during a virtual visit, I'll make a PowerPoint. And seeing's believing. So it's it's this interchange of information that uh, is far more than just words, whether they're spoken or um, written. And how you interpret that, um, I think the nuances of face-to-face communication that the virtual visit provides, uh, to me, has been very enlightening. So it's, it's much better than a email or a phone call where you get validation they understand and also are able to act. So instead of uh, the who's on first or the analysis paralysis, 
uh, they're able to take the next step. And this is where I think the interpretation of the information is so important because people process it differently. And they're in different life circumstances and they have access to different resources. But across all of that, most of them are dealing with heightened uncertainty and anxiety that accompany a diagnosis of, of this sort and complicated treatment. And what I've seen you do is help to alleviate some of that anxiety by offering right a second opinion, right another opportunity for them to try to understand things that otherwise might be opaque to common sense. Just help them feel as comfortable as they can in, in a difficult situation. It's almost, instead of a second opinion, sometimes I think of it as a interpretation to help a plan of care become better and better. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is I think of, this comes from my PhD essay. I did uh, biochemical genetics. I think of my job is to be a facilitator and a catalyst for helping good things happen. And how to do that is to organize information in a way that it's understandable, but also actionable by the caregivers and the patient. Are there challenges that you encounter when you try to do that in a virtual environment or difficulties? Uh, One common one is they, they realize oh, I wish I lived in Cleveland. <laughs> so I tell them, no, you don't have to move here. What you have to do is is realize what we do is special here in some ways, but you can get this kind of care near your home. And so trying to help them achieve the art of possible uh, without moving is... is uh, kind of an interesting challenge. And then the other thing is how you look at uh, a lot of things happen for a reason. You don't know that at the time, but how to slow down and do the correct kind of thinking. One of my uh, favorite books recently was The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. And then that led me to read uh, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Trying to train people to do that deliberate, hard thinking instead of just reacting sometimes is the most valuable thing I can do. And uh, because it's human nature to get angry or just react to stuff. And how to get over that tendency, but to say, well, I don't have the answer right now, but I'll try to work with my team to figure it out and then do so. It's very satisfying, I think, for everybody because, you know, together we do much better than, than just reacting one after another. What were the names of those books, Pete? Um, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, A Friendship That Changed How We Think, 
is the way you can think of it. And it was about uh, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. And then some of the information in that book inspired me to read Daniel Kahneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N's book, Thinking, comma, Fast and Slow, because there are very different kinds of thinking. So if you can, through deliberate practice, teach yourself to do that harder thinking, it's almost like um, another book that influenced me recently was uh, Cal Newport's Deep Work. So sometimes you need blocks of time to actually do something that's difficult. Mm -hmm. It takes Mm -hmm. you a while to get organized, like putting together a one-page summary prior to a virtual visit would be a good example. But it's very satisfying if you can do that. And if you get good at something, often you get better and better at it. It's a practice effect. So I think teaching people that it is possible, you don't have to, it's not how fast you do things, but how well you do things that counts. Um, You have a whole new perspective on how to get things done or not done. As as we wrap up our conversation, do you have any other recommendations for for patients and families about how they can go about developing therapeutic alliances with their care providers? One that's kind of counterintuitive. You know, we we all think of the doctors as being in charge. But physicians, particularly oncologists, really rely on a lot of people. And some of the key people of the team that we work with that I I think of as underutilized are the social worker or the psychologist. They're, um, They're used to storytelling, and they're good at it. So they are very good at listening. That's what they're trained to do. So working with them not only to express your feelings and get validation about what you're doing and figuring out your resources, you know, what is your skill set that's good, you know, so you can build on those, what do you need to work at, um, and then sharing with them that you're seeking new information to put that into place. Sometimes I'll encourage families, particularly those with uh, metastatic disease, to read some books like Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. Another one is uh, Mary Neal's Seven Lessons from Heaven. And then discuss these with these providers and put advanced directives in place. And it's amazing how the barriers to care get less because they'll say, oh, this is a family that gets it. Mm -hmm. They understand. Mm -hmm. They want the gift of some extra time. They don't use the word cure. Instead of they say, I'd like to become a outlier, Mm -hmm. you know, a statistical Mm -hmm. outlier Mm -hmm. in a positive way. So um, trying to develop relationships where you're able to 
lower the barriers to care. Now, that is something that I think uh, families are able to do no matter what their circumstances. And uh, it's up to you to do it. Pete, thank you so much for the care that you provide to so many. I consider you to be a gift to the universe and certainly feel like my life has been enriched by by your presence. And so thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to share. And I hope to be able to do this in many ways for quite a while. And uh, I'm sure we'll see new things each and every year. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WOUB. On our Facebook page, we have links to some of Dr. Pete's written articles that we've referenced today. You can also see Dr. Pete in a short film on WOUB Public Media Center's YouTube channel that that we've put together to go along with this podcast so that the characters that you met during our conversation today, if you want to see them in action, you'll have an opportunity to do so. You can also um, meet Dr. Pete in the feature-length documentary, The Art of the Possible, that's available on Amazon. Thank you. Um, I hope all of our listeners can go in peace and love one another. Thank you.